Hello, all of my beautiful ladies and gentlemen. I'm your host, Zoe McDaniel, and you're listening to Professional Skepticism, a podcast about scandals, conspiracies, and convictions. foremost thank you everyone for tuning into the very first episode of professional skepticism as i said before i'm your host zoe i use she her pronouns and i'm a sagittarius the reason i'm sitting alone in my bedroom closet talking to myself into a microphone is so that you and i can take a close look at real life stuff that i just think is interesting ranging from ponzi schemes and white collar crime to cult leaders, criminals, and a couple of our favorite conspiracy theories, even the occasional political scandal every now and then. Um, This isn't necessarily a true crime podcast, and it's definitely not a comedy podcast. Look, all I'm saying is that we're basically going to gossip and spill the tea about scandalous events throughout history, and that may or may not include criminals and just straight-up dumbasses, and I might even crack a joke or two, maybe. So I have no idea what I'm doing, but today we are going to talk about something so juicy, so unbelievable, and so fucking annoying. Our topic for today is the one and only professional con artist, Billy McFarland, and his cultural experience of the decade, Fire Festival. And cultural experience of the decade was in quotation marks if you didn't know, or if you have no idea what we're about to get into. Um... Just buckle up. So you might be asking, who is Billy McFarland? Oh, you didn't ask? Yeah, neither did any of the thousands of people whose money he stole and lives he ruined. But let's unpack that. So William Z, a.k.a. Billy McFarland, convicted American con artist, was born on December 11th, 1991. Unfortunately, that does make him a Sagittarius, but I do not claim Sagittarius men, except for Ian Summerhalder. His Wikipedia page literally says Billy McFarlane, in parentheses, fraudster. People describe Billy as nerdy, but smart and incredible, charismatic, and trustworthy. He was cunning and convincing enough to influence investors and honestly anyone that he could get to listen to him. He was raised in New Jersey. I don't know why, but for some reason that kind of just like makes sense to me. His parents, Irene and Stephen McFarland, are real estate developers. Billy grew up during this huge information technology boom where investors were funneling money into internet-based companies, expanding the market until inevitably the stock market crashed, leading to the burst of the dot-com bubble. So if you think about it, the dot-com bubble bursting is kind of like a metaphor for all of Billy's failed business ventures. The dot-com bubble is really interesting, so maybe we'll do an episode on that in the future. But anyways, this generation of millennials was one of the first to have unrestricted access to the very new, very raw, and very exciting World Wide Web. Billy claims in the Hulu documentary and in a discussion with the New York Times that he created a web hosting company in the fifth grade, and he literally had a few employees working for him in India, apparently, according to him. So some say that this was early signs of entrepreneurship. Some say that this is just one of the various lies that he's told 
over the course of his life. As we start going through this episode, we're going to be looking a lot at some of the differences between the Hulu documentary that came out about the Fire Festival and the Netflix one. And then there's some other sources here and there, and I'll drop those in the show notes as well. Um, so that was something that they discussed there. His mom said that Billy can only think big, which is a blessing and a curse. Billy went to Bucknell, 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 I don't know, someone will correct me. So let me know, but please be nice about it. Billy went to Bucknell University for computer engineering, where he ended up dropping out pretty early on in his college experience, which is absolutely totally fine. He created a company called Spling, which was a content sharing network similar to Google Plus and other well-known internet-based companies at the time. So nothing original. The Hulu documentary has this clip of Billy giving a demo of Spling with a projection of the website on a monitor. And as he's about to start walking the audience through Spling, the application glitches and shuts down and Billy's just as awkward as you'd expect him to be. The secondhand embarrassment I felt when I watched that scene only fueled my hatred for him even more. Needless to say, the demo was a complete failure. Yikes. Okay, so then Billy moves to New York. Next, we're going to talk about Magnesis, I guess is how you say it. I just want to mention that in an interview, Billy literally said that he spelled the name of his company wrong when he was filling out the paperwork to incorporate it. So people pronounce it Magnesis, but it's supposed to be Magnesis. Dumbass. So at this point, the 2008 Great Recession has already torn its way through the lives of millions and the higher education debt bubble has millennials struggling to use their degrees or even just be on their own in general. Billy decided in 2013 that he was going to create Magnesis. <laughs> I had to think about whether it was Magnesis or Magnesis because it looks like Magnesis, but it's Magnesis. Billy had the brilliant and oh so very original idea to make debit cards look cooler, if you will. So he ordered a magnetic sheet and figured out a way to copy his debit card information onto the sheet to cut it in the shape of a card and then carry it around. The card actually worked when he attempted to make a purchase with it, and thus Magnesis was born. So if you're thinking, wait, what the fuck, Zoe? How did he create a business by copying his own debit card information onto a piece of metal? Well, my fellow skeptics, you are not alone. I am also wondering the same thing, and I am also brain dead after just saying that. Basically, Magnesis was compared to the American Express Black Card, Yet it wasn't even a credit card. The company would simply just copy your existing debit card information onto this metal sheet to make you a Magnesis card. And then suddenly, because your debit card was metal, you now had access to restaurants, gyms, VIP clubs and events, hotel and travel coupons, and lavish parties. If that doesn't scream scam to you, then I'm telling you now that shit was a scam. Magnesis basically boiled down to a townhouse that Billy rented to be the headquarters where people would meet each other and socialize at wine tastings and things of that sort. It was basically just a bunch of frat guys at a frat house, not the higher class, noteworthy people that they would advertise would be attending these events. So to me, they sound like the kind of guys you wouldn't really want to leave your drink around. There were some clips of these events in some of these documentaries, and I was like, wow, people really like paid money to be a part of Magnesis to sit around with these dudes. Anyway, I'm being judgy, but like it's freaking Billy McFarland. So you can't really blame me. 
Cue Aubrey McClendon, a Silicon Valley investor and CEO of Chesapeake Energy, one of the country's most powerful energy companies. McClendon stated that they had discovered the equivalent of two Saudi Arabias of oil. This guy is a big fucking deal. With a name like Aubrey McClendon, he is serving some serious old money vibes. 1% upper elite energy in this bitch. So, somehow, our fumbling friend Billy had a meeting with Aubrey about investing in Magnesis. I honestly can't remember how they knew each other. I want to say that they had, like, family friends with connections or something along those lines. I'm sure um, someone can figure that out for me. But, anyways skip a couple steps, Aubrey invests $500,000 in Magnesis, and the rest was history. Billy then proceeds to drop money on hiring influencers and rappers like Rick Ross to attend his Magnesis events. Tons of positive articles were going out, and people loved Billy. This is when Billy meets rapper, singer, songwriter, and actor. If you know anything about this, you know who I'm talking about. The infamous Ja Rule. So... Ja Rule has had some previous run-ins with the law at this point, including, but not limited to, gun charges and tax charges, which is a fun little combination I like. I mean, I don't like those crimes, but, you know, it's interesting to say the least. So, Ja Rule was not actually formally involved with Magnesis, apparently, but after meeting Billy through a Magnesis event, he became somewhat of a testimonial to Billy's madness. Fast forward, Billy gets sued by the owner of the townhouse because he trashes the place. Obviously, Billy loses the house and things start going downhill from there. So Billy started coming up with shady ideas. Shocker. He would sell things to people that he could not actually ever deliver on. He would buy tickets on StubHub the night of the show for events that Magnesis had been advertising to its cardholders. And then he would go and personally hand them out to cardholders while everyone is freaking out because it's the night of the event and they haven't received any ticket information yet. So it all just becomes this weird big Ponzi scheme, taking the money from selling one set of tickets to pay for another event. Suddenly, news breaks that Aubrey McClendon was indicted on charges of rigging gas prices in Oklahoma City by, and this is from a quote from an NBC News article, arranging for two large oil and gas companies not to bid against each other on the purchase of oil and natural gas leases in northwest Oklahoma. So headlines were claiming that Chesapeake Energy could be the next Enron. Shout out to all my accountants out there. We have an Enron episode planned, so be sure to be on the lookout to hear about some juicy fraudulent accounting activity. Um, But anyway dorked out for a second there, McClendon denies the charges and faces up to 10 years in federal prison. So the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, I would say. After this goes public, Aubrey shockingly dies in a car crash literally the next day after being indicted. All right, skeptics, what do we think about this? I would love to hear your opinions. Does this seem a little too coincidental? Obviously, people are lear- are leaning toward the theory that this was a suicide. The car accident was basically just McClendon driving straight through a grassy median area into a highway embankment, and then the car just bursts into flames. People argue that he could definitely have stopped the car from hitting the wall. No one else was injured in the accident. I personally think that this death is incredibly suspicious, but we can't prove that it was a suicide, but we also can't prove that it was not a suicide. He was already old and faced a long time in prison. I can't say what I would do in that situation because I've never been in it. 
like, let me knock on some wood right now. <laughs> um, but I can understand to some extent why he would feel driven to do such a thing. Um, but I mean, you know, maybe it was just an accident. Regardless, it tore Billy up. Poor, poor Billy. Literally poor Billy. So this marks the end of an era for Magnesis and big trouble for the company. Now Billy needs another idiot to suck dry, and this is when he meets the successful and wealthy businesswoman, Corolla Jane, who happens to have some serious hedge fund money. Corolla becomes one of Billy's core investors. And it's at this time that Ja Rule and Billy begin discussing plans for FIRE, the internet application that essentially allows people to rent out artists and musicians to perform at their personal events via bidding. If the artist approves of the bid, then the app would put your people in contact with their people. I'm pretty sure that was in their words. Blah, 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 voila. Now I've just booked Snoop Dogg to perform at my Sweet 16, all from the comfort of my own bed. Keep in mind, all this time, Billy has employees working for him at Magnesis, struggling to keep the company afloat, while he literally just pours money down the drain. The Magnesis employees caught wind of fire, and the realization that Billy was starting yet another fraudulent business sets in. So... Just to kind of recap, basically Billy came up with this company that really didn't even have any sort of business plan. It was just taking your debit card information, making it a cooler debit card, and then you're just like a part of the cool kids club and you get to go to all these parties and events. I think that the Fire app actually is like a pretty cool idea and I could see that being successful and I think we'll get to it later on. I think I mentioned it, but... Ja Rule actually is, if it's not already happening now, he's been working on this app that's basically the same thing as Fire. Um, so we'll get to that. But so yeah, that's where we're at so far. So let's talk more about Billy and Ja and like their little love child of Fire and how this turns into the experience of the decade or whatever the fuck Billy wanted to call it. So let's look a little closer at Fire now. So... Jaw and Billy called themselves the Uber of booking talent. And I got that from, I believe, the Netflix documentary. They said that. If I was Uber, I would sue them. Jaw Rule was the entertainment industry connection, and Billy was supposed to be the brains and the funds. Keyword, supposed to be. They had only been working on the app for about three to five months until they were ready to promote it. And this is where the idea of a music festival comes into play. And honestly, it was such a good idea. A badass music festival to promote a badass new app with a badass game-changing concept. They just failed in execution. So now that we've got this elaborate marketing scheme, let's get into the planning of the festival, which should have never happened in the first place. Fire Festival was scheduled to take place April 28th through the 30th, and then the next weekend again, May 5th through the 7th in 2017, on the Bahamian Island Great Exuma, right after the world's worst election, aka Donald Trump becoming the president, people wanted to escape, and Fire Festival was their perfect opportunity. Billy and Ja Rule attend a web summit, and this is their first real piece of press about the festival. So they've already got the dates planned, they've got the app going, it's only been a couple of months, they're like, okay, festival! And then they just kind of go hard with that. So they're at this web summit. They talk all about the beautiful villas for lodging and the lavish gourmet meals and festival activities, including a treasure hunt for something like $1 million. All this big talk influenced people to view Fire Festival in the same light as huge historic cultural events such as Woodstock, 
Monterey Pop in the 60s, Live Aid and Burning Man in the 80s, and Lollapalooza and Coachella in the 90s. So these events, which allow you to escape from reality and create your own little society for a couple of days, incite FOMO for normal, everyday people. Trust me, we all have had a little bit of FOMO before. So the opportunity to be a part of the first ever fire festival was important. Um, God, I sound like a boomer. <laughs> These documentaries are getting the best of me. We often forget how much of a failure Woodstock was from a project management perspective, how many people died from overdoses and the inability to receive proper medical care. Even the most successful festivals result in undesirable situations. These concerns, though, were the last things on Billy and Jaw's minds. So Billy and Jaw were hiring the best of the best for musical talent and social media and promotions management. Samuel Cross was a 23-year-old Fire Media employee who was asked by Billy to create and book the lineup. He had no experience booking talent for a music festival. He just worked on the app. So some of the musical acts that were planning to be there included Major Lazer, who, according to Crossed, were incredibly overpaid, Disclosure, Blink-182, Tyga, Ray Srimmerd, Migos, Catronata, and so much more. And honestly, it sounds like it would have been a great lineup. I, I probably would have gone. Artists of this caliber were expecting a specific level of production, lighting, sound systems. Um, and then Billy and Ja decided to go and hire Fuck Jerry for their social media and marketing content management. And Fire was one of Fuck Jerry's main clients at that time. It ended up being a really good decision for Fire, um, if only they had like followed through with their part of the business proposal. But, you know, what can you do? Not put together a successful festival, apparently. So if you're not familiar with the infamous Fuck Jerry, it's an Instagram account ran by Elliot Tabell. Tabelli? God, I should really look these things up before I get on here and say them, but whatever. Um, he's definitely, people have a lot of opinions about him. So he became one of the original influencers to make memes for a living. This evolved into Jerry Media, a social media brand that created memes for big companies. Their campaign objective is to truly shift opinions, apparently. Oren Axe is interviewed in the Hulu documentary, and he's incredibly open about how messed up this whole situation was and to what extent Fuck Jerry was involved. Fuck Jerry actually helped produce the Netflix documentary, so it's fair to assume that there's some serious bias in that one. Oren's first client after starting on the Fuck Jerry team was Fire, so... This poor guy had no idea what he was getting into. I love this. I'm looking at my notes right now, and my cat Ruby, I guess, stepped on my keyboard, and so it says, Ja and Billy Poo, four, 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 four. Um, <laughs> that would probably be, like, his AOL, like, email address name or some shit. So, Ja and Billy Poo were selling a dream, a place, a concept. They didn't have the capacity, though, to realize what was needed to go into pulling off something as lavish as what they were spewing to the public. So the first thing that they set out to do is to get started on marketing because why the fuck not? Um, they flew out to the Bahamas where they essentially just throw this huge beach bum party with all of the hottest Instagram models and influencers. They hired a dedicated film crew to literally follow them around while they just partied and document everything. So Billy had no rules. Everyone was drinking. There was an open bar. Billy and Ja had this toast that they like to make. Oh my god, I'm going to vomit just thinking about it. It goes a little something like this. Here's to living like movie stars. 
partying like rock stars and fucking like porn stars, which in and of itself is so fucking badass. But when these two himbos say it, you can't help but cringe like, ew. And first of all, it's cool, but don't say it. Like, don't say those things out loud. Just do it if you're going to do it. Anyways, while their promotional video was being filmed, Billy and Ja made all of the models post pictures while they partied with hashtag fire festival. One of the islands near the original site of the festival where the video was filmed was known as the Pig Island. Everyone was drunk and wanted to go to Pig Island to get some cool shots, whatever that means. But it ended up being just a bunch of drunk people running away from these pigs because they were literally biting people and they're these fucking huge ass like hogs. It's like, it never could have occurred to any of them that a bunch of wild fucking pigs might not enjoy a bunch of drunk idiots invading their habitat. I don't know. Maybe they could have thought of that. So Billy and Jaw were incredibly persistent that the cameras were rolling 24-7 while they were visiting all these islands. The production team had to get the video regardless of how unprofessional the situation was. Grant... Oh god, I'm gonna say a name weird again. Grant Margolin? Margolin? chief marketing officer for Fire Festival, was so adamant that the video look and feel a certain way, he literally wrote the film crew a multiple-page email with details of exactly how it should be. The film crew claimed, and I quote, it reeked of disconnection from reality, which is such a beautiful, quick, concise little sentence of how I feel like this whole experience really went. But the video turned out, like, so good. Everyone was beautiful. The island was beautiful. The video gave viewers instant FOMO. This is where the infamous burnt orange tile comes into play. One of their genius marketing ideas was to have over 400 artists, musicians, models, actors, comedians, influencers, anyone you could think of, post a picture to Instagram of this burnt orange colored tile to advertise the fire Festival. Kendall Jenner, Bella Hadid, and Hailey Bieber are just some of the influencers who made posts at the time. I don't think Hailey Bieber was Hailey Bieber at the time, but I don't think I can say her last name. <laughs> all the influencers posted the orange tile at the exact same time. It was all over everyone's feeds, disrupting regular content and leaving people curious about what this plain orange photo could mean. It caught everyone's attention, and honestly, it was genius. They were doing all of the marketing the way that they should have, but they just didn't have anything tangible to market. Hence, a fucking orange tile, another, like, symbol of this weird fucking festival. Kendall Jenner was paid $250,000 by Wired just to post one Instagram picture about Fire Festival. Apparently, $250,000 is a steal for Kendall to post a picture, and we all know how the internet is. Now that Kendall is publicly affiliating herself with the festival, people make the assumption that Kanye is going to be playing there, which to me is quite the leap, but you know. Brand sponsors were trying to take their investments out of Coachella and put them in Fire Festival. Later on, as facts were being presented in the news and the inevitable demise of the festival, people totally ignored them, writing them off as rumors because of their strong social media strategy and buy-in from top influencers. So all up to this point, the only real substance that we have is just the social media marketing. So there's word getting out in the news about, you know, this doesn't seem like it's coming together the way that it should be. But people were so swayed by the marketing program that was happening that they just refused to believe it or even have their own doubts and suspicions. 
So there were packages available for sale with options for festival goers to spend up to $250,000 for a private yacht with a chef on board, rustic glamping tents, and private homes. Now, I like to go to the occasional, like, EDM show. I like to go to a rave. I like to go to a festival. Maybe I'm just fucking poor, but, like, I didn't even know that festivals had options like this. Maybe this is why people were so interested in it, because it's, like, standing out from other festivals that are of the same supposedly of the same caliber, but, like, buying a private yacht, and, like, we'll get more into some of the stuff that's available, but it's just, it seems so unbelievably fake to me. It's like, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. <laughs> that's all I can say. Okay. Within 48 hours of the release of tickets, they sold somewhere around 95% of the tickets to Fire Festival. 10,000 people was the maximum number of festival attendees, which isn't, like, super crazy huge, to be honest. Like, I've been to festivals that were much larger, so it seems exclusive. For a first-time festival producer to sell out your festival is a huge accomplishment. Shortly after this, Ja Rule was a keynote speaker for whatever fucking reason at a festival convention in Las Vegas. Industry insiders were literally laughing at him as he discussed their plans for the festival. They knew that it was not going to be possible to pull off. Instead of fantasizing about models and this dream-esque experience, Billy and Ja should have been thinking about infrastructure, production, plumbing, food and medicine, and so much more. Enter Andy King. Bless his heart. Andy knew Billy since he was about 20 years old. Poor guy. Billy called Andy in desperate need of help with the festival and flew him in to save his ass. At this point, Andy became the new leader in Billy's lifeline. Typically, festival design and fundraising needs to start at least 12 months out, at least. Some even stated 18 months out from the festival, but the team that worked Fire Festival only had 8 to 10 weeks. So up to this point, it's like getting closer and closer to the date of the fucking festival, and nothing has come to fruition. And Billy calls in Andy King, and they have 8 to 10 fucking weeks to get this shit put together. Madness. Plans and directions started to get mixed up. No one could discern what was true about the festival and what wasn't. All the employees are really, really fucking confused. Okay, here's... <laughs> we're gonna get into some more details. Here we go. The original site for the festival was Saddleback K. Key. K. I don't know. A private island that was previously owned by Pablo Escobar in the Bahamas. At first, it sounds super cool, but then you remember that Pablo Escobar was a brutal and relentless murderer who took the lives of thousands of people, and it's suddenly not so cool anymore. Um, so Billy and Ja Rule, why did I say it like that? Ja Rule, get really excited about this, and they make sure that that is what they advertise. And when they advertise the festival, they say explicitly, it's Pablo Escobar's island. People were literally DMing the account saying that their parents were brutally murdered by Pablo Escobar and that the advertisement of his island was insensitive at the fucking very least. Billy and Ja were quickly contacted by lawyers representing Pablo Escobar's estate who basically told them to cease and desist. So now they need a new island for the festival. The Bahamas have always been a first stop shop for scammers. Unemployment is high, it's still a developing country, so it's easy for people with big money to come in and take advantage of the people in the climate. They bring this luxurious lifestyle into an area riddled with poverty, 
and you create the perfect atmosphere for fraudulent activity. Keith Vanderlind was a pilot who would fly them to and from the island as needed. He kept giving them suggestions for how to approach their issues that they'd be discussing on their flights with practicality, but they would pretty much just dismiss him. And this is just one of the various opportunities that presented itself for Billy and Ja to call it quits on the festival or even just take somebody's fucking advice who might actually know more, even about the area. Like, it doesn't even have to be festival advice. Maybe just the area. Um, and it, they just decided, like, whatever. They'll do whatever they want. They could have called it quits before things got too far and out of hand, but they never took the bait. Keith's concerns regarding the execution of the festival continued to grow, and it eventually got to the point where Billy and Ja asked him to leave. So this is when they decided to move to the festival to Great Exuma, which physically could not fit the people attending the festival, let alone the infrastructure needed to support the attendees. Someone suggested getting a cruise ship for people to sleep on because there was literally no room on the island. Like, how fucking bananas is that? That's so ridiculous. This location was essentially a parking lot on the side of the Sandals Emerald Bay Resort. And the picture they used to advertise the location was photoshopped to make the site look like a deserted island. Like, it was attached to another island, and they photoshopped the picture so it looked like it was just its own little island where the festival was happening. Regardless of the immense amount of work that needed to be done in order to prepare, the locals were excited to host Fire Festival. The festival was projected to go on every year for five years, which... Like, who said that? <laughs> I just want to talk. Um, so it was a good contract for the local businesses that would be involved in building and catering and hosting. The festival site was an old housing development that they never finished developing. It was incredibly hazardous and on top of a hill. It needed a lot of work to make it safe and inhabitable for the festival. They planned the festival during the same dates as the Exuma Family Regatta Sailing Event, which is Great Exuma's biggest annual event. The event has been compared to the Super Bowl weekends, and during this time, the island doubles in population. Locals from surrounding islands all make plans to visit. Because of this, there were no cars available to rent and no hotels for people to stay in who were attending the festival. So now let's talk about housing. Now things are really starting to heat up, and Billy is realizing that they are way in over their fucking heads. It's at this point that they decided GA tickets were officially sold out, and they started selling premium, quote, premium packages. They had luxurious villas posted on their website for festival goers to buy for $250,000, yet the villas did not even exist. I feel like $250,000 is, like, the key number. I feel like I've said that, like, five times. Like, why does everything cost that much for this festival? And who's spending that much on a festival? Like, I wish I had that kind of money. Um, just to survive, much less just spend on one fucking festival. Anyways, I digress. People bought these housing tickets, though. So they basically had to find Airbnbs for people to stay in for somewhere around 500 guests. 500! They oversold lodge packages, so they ended up just setting up tents on the main festival sites to compensate. They used FEMA tents from Hurricane Matthew and placed air mattresses inside of them for people to sleep on. I'm going to say it again. They used FEMA tents from Hurricane Matthew and placed air mattresses inside of them for people to sleep on. I'm lost for words. $250,000. Like, I could get a better setup than that at a fucking Walmart for, like, $50. Then suddenly word comes down that all influencers get housing for free. I don't know where the word came from. 
but I don't think anyone else did either because it was nearly impossible to distinguish the facts from fiction, rumors from reality, once they were this far into this mess. For 250 influencers, Fire Festival promised one-bedroom, three-person villas on the beach that didn't exist, by the way, in return for them making one post about Fire Festival on their accounts. Apparently, according to Billy, they actually did have 250 houses rented worth $250 million with paper receipts and pictures of the homes to prove it, but ready? Are you ready? I don't think so. Billy claims that they had a box with all of the physical keys to these houses and rental cars with maps and information, but the box went missing. That's it. Just gone. The box is gone. So where are the fucking houses and cars? I'm just... Ugh, I have questions. All of the original blueprints of the rooms that people had bought were removed from the Fire Festival website. People were trying to book flights and figure out logistics, but they didn't even know where they were supposed to be going. Like, people were commenting on the Instagram asking legit questions and received absolutely no guidance. The social media team was told to block comments with words as simple as festival, lineup, and details. And then they were told to make the list again of words to block in all caps in case the word blocking feature was case sensitive. Yeah, so I don't know. I think... I think if I'm hiring a social media company, I would probably trust them to know if something would be case sensitive in that situation. But I mean, just to be safe, like this is how paranoid these guys are. They're literally just so fucking stressed out. If you watch these documentaries or read any of these articles, like you can just feel the stress, like the energy coming off of these people. Most of the comments were deleted, and eventually the social media team was directed to disable the comment function entirely. Everyone kept telling Billy and Ja that they needed to cancel this festival. Literally everyone, from the Fire app employees to the social media marketers to the Bahamian locals, knew that this festival could not happen. Someone close to the matter, I don't know what that means, that's just what I wrote, <laughs> so it's probably what they said in this, uh, I believe this one is the Hulu Netflix documentary. Someone close to the matter said that the Billy, the Billy, Billy was unflappable, but entirely delusional. He would take no for an answer. Am I okay? He would not take no for an answer, and he wouldn't listen to professional advice, which I just don't understand. It's like, you have no idea what you're doing. You have no prior experience doing anything like this. You have not been successful before. Why would you not just listen to someone who knows what they're doing and they can fucking, like, all you need to do is just hire them and you can sit back and relax and then you'll have a cool festival and everything will be great. But no, he couldn't do that. At this point, we're weeks out from the festival and Billy had not arranged for the money to be sent to the artists on the lineup yet. Billy had every single person on the island working for the festival and building shit and they were working like 18, 19, 20 hour days. There was no access to electricity or running water. They were going to have to ship in porta potties because there was no plumbing infrastructure for these luxurious bathrooms that were promised. This was being discussed in an email, and a former e employee remembers someone replying, in quotes, no one is going to be eating, so no one is going to be pooping, dot, 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 dot. Wow. The group effort that went into this negligence is truly something else. Like, I love to shit talk Billy and Ja, like, all day long. Like, let's just talk about what fucking fumbling idiots these guys are. Because, like, wow. But so many people were working on this, 
And somebody literally said that, and there's record of it. Like, how can you just, like, be so far removed from it mentally that you're just going to let all these people fly out here? Anyways. One of the Fire Apps product designers... Oh my god, I'm going to say her name wrong. Xian Deng stated, We just knew very little about what was happening on the festival side, except, you know, the persistent feeling of growing dread. Yeah. Billy told Mark Weinstein, a consultant that was brought in to help salvage the festival, to lie to Carolla and to admit telling her about the housing situation because they were trying to get more money out of her. If it wasn't already apparent, cash flow was becoming an issue. Billy handled all of the finances for some fucking reason, and they had sunk costs of $25 million. Oh, but don't worry. Whenever they were just strapped for cash and had a payment coming up, which was like, I don't know, every other fucking day, Billy would just hop on a jet, fly to New York, and come back with $3 million in his pocket somehow. What a life. So, this hot mess is only getting hotter. Um, Emails show that around this time, Billy is so short of cash that he begins engaging in criminal acts and wire frauds for amounts he promised to vendors. He would tell vendors that he sent their money and would proceed to send them screenshots of confirmation pages with the tracking numbers cut off and he never actually wired the money. The artists were not paid on the terms that they agreed upon and Billy was basically in breach of the contracts the day he signed them. Alright, so this is from Bloomberg, so you know it's the fucking financial tea. Billy even went as far as doctoring financial statements and using them to secure investments from venture capitalist firms. A term sheet from Comcast Ventures was given to Fire Media based on fraudulent financial statements which indicated that the app was far more profitable than it was. The original Fire report showed that they had brought in $1.5 million in bookings, but Billy had them doctor the report to show $35 million in bookings. Like, that is so ridiculous. Former employees said at the time the company had only made about $57,000 total. Comcast ended up revoking their term sheet and never actually gave any money to Billy, but there's more. Billy also stated that he owned somewhere around $2 million worth of Facebook shares when he only had about $1,000 invested in Facebook. Like, why, why even say that? What kind of lie is that? He lied to investors about artists they had booked with the Fire app and how much money they spend. He even said someone had booked Drake through the app and that they got $100,000, but they just didn't. Now get this. The whole time shit is going down with the Fire Festival, Billy has racked up millions of dollars on his Fire Amex card to pay for event tickets for his Magnesis users because that's still a thing somehow. Like, that's still happening while all this is going on. Billy also left hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt on the personal credit cards of his employees who are now being sued for their inability to repay these amounts, which I am very confused by this information. Why would you ever let your dumbass boss use your credit card and put hundreds of thousands of dollars on there? And I mean, I'm assuming that's like a collective of his employees, but still, how do you even get that much of a limit? That's crazy. These are significant financial crimes, if you couldn't tell. I have some information from the SEC in here as well. Based on the information made available, it seems like all the employees were aware of maybe one or two shady financial dealings that were going on, but nobody saw the whole picture until it all came crumbling down. Everyone who worked with Billy just assumed that someone else would eventually figure out what he was doing. 
At this point, a whole slew of social media accounts start popping up trying to warn the public of the disaster of a festival that's hiding behind videos of beautiful Instagram models popping bottles with a bunch of pigs. Fire Key, I think it's Key, pretty sure it's Key. Fire Key and Fire Festival Fraud were two big accounts whose sole purpose was just to destroy Fire Festival. The Fire Fraud admin called the Wall Street Journal and they investigated and published about some of the things that were coming out about the festival. The New York Times was publishing articles with concern about the festival as well. It became apparent that the person running these accounts was an insider. The Fire Festival team would hold confidential meetings and then immediately information was coming out on these accounts that was literally word for word verbatim information from the meetings, which I fucking love that shit. There was speculation that someone was wired and that they were extorting Billy to tell the truth. If any investors had just done some research, they would have known it would take several months, if not years, even if you had all the money in the world, to buy a private island in the Bahamas. There are a lot of legal stipulations that go into this process. So people were literally working out to prepare for this festival, quitting their jobs if they couldn't get their time off approved, and sold their personal items to go to this fake festival. Remember, this festival's target audience was middle to upper class millennials and FOMO is a serious disease, okay? The internet only exacerbates this need to be involved. I think, like, coming out of the pandemic and stuff, we definitely understand that. Suddenly, April 22nd rolls around, you know, just a week or so before the festival, and festival goers receive an email about fire wristband accounts. This email prompted attendees to load at least $3,000 onto RFID wristbands to make paying for things like drink services and jet skis and private planes at the festival swift and seamless. The push for digital payments was not because they wanted to make it a cashless festival. It was because they needed the money on the bands so that they could put on the festival because, remember, it's all one big Ponzi scheme, whether it was intentional or not. The deeper they go with this mess, the more I'm just baffled at how people fell for this millennial escape quotes around that. I don't know who the fuck called it that. At least $3,000 just for casual spending at the festival is beyond anything I could ever imagine spending on a festival, like in total. But that's just me. Um, And I have to imagine many other people out there feel the same way. They end up bringing in $800,000 on these wristbands. Just fucking wild. Hopping back to the topic of Billy being very, very strapped for cash, which we haven't really left that topic. That's kind of the whole fucking point of this conversation. He took out a loan for $3 million from Ezra Birnbaum with a maximum interest rate of something over 100% with payments that were due very quickly. It has been implied that the digital wristband scam was a direct result of Billy needing to make payments on this loan to Ezra. They interview Billy in the Hulu documentary and ask him whether the wristbands are related to the ridiculous payments that he needed to make. And of course, he denies and starts brooding on camera like the giant man baby that he is. Oh my god, you need to watch it. You need to watch both. It's like so polar opposites. It's such a striking difference. Um, It's very, very interesting. Watch them, please. And do some more research outside of that. Read the SEC documents. It's honestly very interesting to look at the lawsuit information about this. Of their $38 million budget, which was put together in a day's time, I might add, they had $6 million allocated to pay the catering company, but when it came time to pay, they only had enough cash flow to give them $1 million. Billy lashed out at them over the phone and fired them two weeks before the festival, and so there was just no food arrangements. Billy wanted extravagant food, such as sushi chefs. I feel like that sounded weird. Sushi chefs. 
and authentic Indian cuisine, and he wanted someone to find a caterer to do this for them in two weeks. Though they only had $1 million to spend on food, they somehow bought $2 million worth of booze, and the liquor tax in the Bahamas was 45% at the time of purchase. So, miraculously, Andy finds a local caterer with basically no time left for anything elaborate to be planned, and then we get to the water fiasco. If you've heard anything about the fire Festival, it's probably this. There were four 18-wheeler truck containers of Evian water that was supposed to be for the festival. Customs said that the fire Festival needed to pay $175,000 for the water to be released to them. Which, like, based on the stuff we've been talking about, the numbers we've been talking about, that's like chump change with the money that they're blowing through. So, like, it's water. Pay it. So, of course... Billy calls Andy and he says, We need you to take one big thing for the team. You're our wonderful gay leader. Will you suck the head of Customs' dick to fix this water problem? And that's in quotes. So Andy drove home, took a shower, used some mouthwash, and got in his car to drive across the island, fully prepared to suck this man's dick so that there weren't 10,000 people stranded on this barren island without any water. And this is in the Netflix documentary where they're, like, being all, like, cutesy and sweet and, like, oh, Billy never meant any harm. And they brought this up. Like, I can't believe they did that. When he got there, the head of customs released the water to him without making Andy suck his dick. Wow, he has a soul. Um, however, Andy had to agree that customs would receive the payments that Fire Festival had been behind on for everything that they'd been importing. The general theme of the Netflix documentary is that by constantly figuring out ways to solve their ridiculous problems, they were enabling this event to grow into the disaster that it was. Let's get into the nitty-gritty. Employees stated that they had meetings with Billy every day leading up to the festival about pulling the plug and cutting their losses before people arrived and saw the reality of what they had paid for. And every day he would say no! Just one day out from the festival, there wasn't even enough housing to safely, safely house their staff. That evening, under a full moon, it started pouring rain, thundering, and lightning. So now, all those lovely air mattresses and FEMA tents are now soaked and completely destroyed. Mark Weinstein recalled that they were scrambling, trying to figure out what to do before people arrived, and then the guests arrived 30 minutes earlier than expected, like some sort of fucking joke. Blink-182 pulled out right before they got on the plane, and festival goers were finding out via Instagram and Twitter as they're boarding their flights. There were no plans to get the people back home, no charter flights available, even the Fuck Jerry staff had to hitchhike to the festival because they didn't have cars on the island for the festival goers. As people arrived on the island, they closed down the campsite and rerouted all attendees to a local beachside restaurant where they held them on the beach for hours, Everyone was confused. People were getting wasted drunk or taking their party favors. Wink, wink. People were burning in the sun. Eventually, Billy stands up on a table and tells everyone to go claim a campsite. And people just absolutely lose their shit. Lord of the Flies style. People raided tents and stole all of the mattresses. Some were even destroying the campsites that were nearby so that people wouldn't camp near them. Forcing them to go look in other areas for campsite materials. It was all very barbaric. Which... The destroying the campsites, like, that's just bonkers to me. Like, if you've ever been to a festival or a rave or anything like that, most of the time people are, like, so welcoming and, like, willing to share with you. Like, these people were so literally stressed out that they were just, like, not wanting people around them. Like, I can't imagine how terrifying this experience probably was. They brought all their luggage in big 18-wheeler containers and told everyone to find their stuff. Like, 
are you kidding me? When the sun went down, the camaraderie was over. If there was camaraderie, I guess when they're all drunk and tripping balls in the sun, they're probably having a little bit more fun. There were no lights on this island, so it's pitch black in the dead of night. There was one scene in the Netflix documentary of a stage in the distance that they somehow managed to stand up. It's like this tiny little stage. And there's like pink strobe lights just kind of flashing eerily, like emergency lights as people run around terrified. It's such a creepy visual. I'm thinking of it right now. Obviously, I just told you about it. Okay, you know how earlier I said that you probably knew the story about sucking dick? Well, (laughs) if you've heard of Fire Festival, you 100,000% know about the hilariously sad food situation. I laugh. It's not that funny. It's funny, but it's fucked. The gourmet, luxurious food that the guests were served was a cheese sandwich. Like, literally just a piece of bread with a slice of cheese on it. I think some people may have had some pieces of lettuce and a slice of a tomato. And I'm not going to lie. I would eat that struggle meal. I actually ate that struggle meal last night. But this is such a smack in the face to all these people that were probably genuinely concerned that their lives were in danger. Like, I don't know what else to say, honestly. So while this is, like, seriously about as dangerous and horrible as the situation could possibly go, I mean, obviously it could be worse, but, like, this is pretty terrifying. Everyone on social media thought it was hilarious, and I am one of them. I am such a bitch. Like, part of me is like, if I was there, I would have a lot of, like, trauma to work through because that is, like, one of my worst fears. Like, being stranded, being near water, not having any idea what's going on. Like, that's really, really not okay. But it's also really fucking hilarious, (laughs) when you're not the one involved. People were making so much fun of all of these rich assholes and, like, sad frat guy wannabes who are experiencing camping and poverty for probably the first times in their lives. And it is just so much better that they spent thousands of dollars to do it. People were literally eating this shit up. We love to see it. Now that we've addressed how hilarious this is, let's, let's go back to how terrifying it is. So, can you imagine literally flying out of the country... To be stranded somewhere like this with a bunch of strangers and no organized way out. Now the Bahamian government is demanding money from Billy. Locals start putting hits out on people to hold for ransom to make sure that they could get paid. People are panicking and just leaving their rent-a-cars in the middle of the street with their keys in the ignition. People are fed up with the situation and chaos has ensued. While the festival goers await flights off the island... People are absolutely high out of their minds, like pissed drunk, sunburnt as hell. One person passed out and had to go to the hospital. People were fighting and freaking out. When the planes finally start arriving, which I don't even know how they got planes. Like, I don't, I don't know. But apparently they somehow managed to arrange for planes to come get these fucking people. And when the planes finally start arriving, the headcount for one of the planes does not match to the manifest. So it looks like there was 112 people on the plane and 111 people on the manifest. So the U.S. wouldn't let this plane back in and they had to return and land the plane to get the extra person off the flight. When they finally got back on the plane and were ready to take off, that crew had to leave because they were on the plane for too long according to FAA regulations. And they had to wait even longer before they could finally head back to the States. I think the funniest fucking part about all of this is that festival goers received an email from the fire festival saying that they got off to a rocky start, but that day two would be so much better. Can you imagine? That is hysterical. The aftermath. Let's get into it. To absolutely no one's surprise, many of the former fire employees claim to experience PTSD and tremendous guilt after this event. 
a very talented team of software application engineers put a ton of hours into this application just for it to all be wasted on this festival. So when the news breaks and all the Fire App employees confront Billy, he said about the situation in his defense, we didn't kill anybody, nobody got hurt. Pretty sure some people got hurt. Um, I know some wallets got hurt for sure. Someone recorded the phone call with Billy and the Fire employees after the fiasco went down and put it on SoundCloud to expose Billy as he admits to this fraudulent activity. Billy refused to actually fire or terminate any of the employees, but there's no payroll or official employment because he literally could not even pay them, so this made it so that they couldn't file for unemployment benefits. Not only did Billy screw over his direct reports, but a quarter of a million dollars in day wages were owed to the locals of Great Exuma, and they were never paid. So finally, the FBI, thank fucking God, started looking into this, and spoke with employees such as Mark Weinstein and Ornax. Supposedly, in the event of an issue, the investors were covered, quotes, but there wasn't any money set aside to repay them as promised, and Billy failed to secure cancellation insurance. A $100 million class action lawsuit was filed literally the day the festival goers got back from Fire Festival, and Stacey Miller of Miller Law Group filed suit on behalf of independent attendees against Billy for committing fraud. Seth Crossno and his friend were defended by the Miller Law Group and eventually awarded a $5 million judgment against Billy. Meanwhile, Billy's lawyers were sending cease and desist letters to people who were commenting negatively on social media about the festival. Yet somehow, Billy's attorneys seemed to have just about anyone and everyone who ever knew him to write these amazing character descriptions about him for the trial. You know, anyone and everyone except all of his employees who fucking hate him. Some of the lawyers proposed that Billy should have to pay what the company was, quote, worth, according to his doctored financial statements to each of his victims and damages, to which I say, we stan a petty lawyer, okay? I fucking love that. Billy's obviously arrested, okay? But then he was released on 300k in bail, which I feel like is just... It should have been a lot more, but I guess, like, financial crimes are never... Like, I mean, you end up paying a lot of money, but these people always get out of it somehow. Then this video is released of Billy, and he's caught on camera joking about the fire festival and claiming that he wasn't going to go to jail. Um, sir, the audacity. So Billy's spending all of this money that he doesn't have in Manhattan with his girlfriend while he's on bail. And while I want to dive right into where he gets this money, I want to address the elephant in the room, which is that this actual sleazeball of a human has a hot girlfriend somehow. Like, I'm not going to put her name out there or say anything negative, but I'm, like, genuinely concerned that she's being manipulated just like every other person Billy's ever interacted with. Don't sue me. You know, this is just my thoughts. But go watch the Hulu documentary if you're curious about her. Just listen to the way Billy speaks and the way his girlfriend speaks about him. He really gives cult leader vibes, and I am not here for it. He's probably one of the most embarrassingly awful con artists we've seen yet, and he is so invested in it that his delusions and, like, grandiose statements are just his reality at this point. Suddenly, <laughs> suddenly people who attended the fire Festival start receiving emails from a company called NYC VIP Access, offering tickets to the 2018 Masters, Burning Man, courtside seats to sporting events, the Met Gala, which, by the way, you cannot purchase tickets for, and the guest list goes through a, a review and approval process. And for the grand finale, the Victoria's Secret Fashion Show. LOL. 
They keep getting emails to reserve these flights, attend meet and greets, all that good shit, all those typos, all those events that you can buy tickets for. They were offering tickets for events you literally cannot buy tickets for. And anyone who knows how to do simple research could just figure this out. All the emails are just signed from someone named Frank. Like, just Frank. Frank is someone that Billy asked to be the face of his new company because I'm pretty sure he legally couldn't operate another business due to his financial charges, but also for the sheer fact that no one is going to buy anything from Billy McFarlane if he is attached to the company. Fifteen people gave Frank over $100,000 and the FBI found out about it. Now, I've had calls from my dad and he's like, hey, I just got an email from Microsoft that's like signed from this guy named John and it's like the most weird vague thing and he forwards it to me and it's just like a paragraph written out signed from someone and underneath it says Microsoft. That's what I'm imagining these emails look like. Like just they're literally trying to scam people. Like leave my poor dad out of it. The festival attendees start gossiping about these emails and assume that Billy sold the email list or something but it was literally just Billy and that guy Frank and it's his real name it's just Frank. On the other end of the line, cold calling people trying to get money. And there's footage of this happening because Billy is so fucking narcissistic that he needs everything to be recorded at all times. A smooth criminal, let me tell you. Billy wanted to film a documentary about the collapse of the fire festival and make a huge comeback as some sort of PR exercise. And he Venmo's a producer $1,000 on the spot to just fly in and record him sitting around his penthouse. This man is out on bail for fraud and then continues to commit the fraud like a gambler or an alcoholic. He's addicted to scamming. Billy is now rearrested, shocker, and charged with five felonies, including charges related to the wire fraud, but also for lying to officers. The Southern District of New York is the premier office of the Department of Justice, and they can prosecute anything anywhere, anytime, and that includes Billy. He warned two people to not talk to the FBI and to pretend that they were represented by legal counsel. (sighs) Billy was sentenced to six years in federal prison and agreed to a lifetime ban on serving as a corporate officer or director for a business. That just seems like not enough. I feel like for the things that he did to people, like these people, they were endangered, essentially. Like, it just seems like not enough time. While being interviewed for the Hulu documentary, Billy claims that the legal investigation does not involve any of the financial terms, executions, payments, whatever, to vendors, and that they are not in the terms of the legal proceedings. According to the court documents for the case made by the SEC against Billy, over 100 investors were duped by Billy for a whopping $27.4 million in lost investments. Here's a list of things that were called out in the complaint that was filed made false statements concerning key fire media and fire festival financial metrics and assets, falsified financial data, made false claims of affiliations with talent, created a fraudulent brokerage statement in order to suggest to investors and banks that McFarland personally possessed collateral sufficient to securitize investments, made false statements and created a fake document concerning purported bank loans and a purported significant pending investment in fire media, claimed falsely that he would obtain event cancellation insurance for Fire Festival and engaged in a scheme to create the illusion that Magnesis was being acquired by a third party that did not exist. Billy takes an Alford plea, 
which basically means that he pleads guilty on paper because it's very likely that a jury is going to find him guilty, but he still attests to his innocence. I honestly don't know how he could think that anyone believe he's innocent. It isn't like he slipped and accidentally signed a bad contract once. This was a massive, elaborate combination of every potential scam known to man. Billy's currently in jail and has a new venture, teaching a class to fellow inmates. Honestly, he might be out now. I wrote these notes a little while ago. I'll have to look. (laughs) Knowing him, like, who fucking knows? The Bahamas banned Billy and the Fire Festival for the rest of eternity, basically, and good for them. Ja Rule somehow didn't have any repercussions whatsoever with the Fire Festival fiasco, and by the end of it all, Ja says that the Fire app and the festival were his visions, and he's now launching an eerily similar concept with an app called Icon, with two ends, because he's fancy. Okay, so, the results. You know how every time you see an influencer post a product on Instagram now, it says hashtag ad? Well, we can thank Billy McFarlane for that one. Today, influencers are responsible for the products they promote and are required to disclose whether the post is or is not a paid advertisement. At the time the posts were made, the influencers didn't know the reality of what was going on with the Fire Festival. The Netflix documentary painted the picture as if the models and influencers were not really thrilled to be there um, for the filming of the promo video in the first place. So ultimately, the influencers were not malicious with their intent. They were also misled by Billy. Regardless, the situation became a precedent for social responsibility of influencers and the like. Fire Festival settlement may award ticket holders more than $7,000 each as of May 2022, so hopefully that happens um, because that's just kind of sad, especially for the people that were, like, selling their possessions and, like, quitting their jobs and shit to go. Like, they really didn't have, like, that money, but they just, like, they were like, this is the chance of a lifetime. Like, this is going to be so badass. Like, that's sad. If approved, the $2 million settlement in Manhattan federal bankruptcy court would at least partially reimburse some 277-ish ticket holders for their troubles, according to a CNN article um, that was published in 2021. Marianne Roll, um, who was the woman who had to feed all of the the staff and the people on the island who spent her life savings to provide for this festival, received tons of love and donations after the documentaries aired. If you watch those, she's like just an angel, and my heart went out to her. It still does, but she did... um, it looks like she got, like, a bunch of GoFundMes and stuff that people set up for her. So that is well-deserved. And that poor woman, I can't even believe the trauma that she went through, spending her whole life savings. Um, yeah, so that's it. I'm sure I could probably talk about this <laughs> so much more. Like, there are so many, 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 many details that go into this. Um, but it was fun. I had fun telling you guys about that. I got a little bit heated. I got excited. I'll post all of these sources in the show notes. I will also post where you can follow us. Um, You can follow us on Instagram at, let me pull it up, at profskeppodcast. So that's on Instagram at P-R-O-F-S-K-E-P podcast, at profskeppodcast. Thank you all so much for listening. I hope you had a good time and you'll be back for my next episode.